Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas in stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium, and in any genre. In so doing, we hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew frames that conversation through nine simple yet powerful questions that sit at the foundations of all thoughtful human discourse. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome back to Bibliophiles. I am your host. Welcome back, indeed. That's right. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. I'm your host, Ian. I'm joined by all the members of my family, my mama, Missy. Hi. My dad, Adam. Hello, hello. My wife, Emily. Hello. And my sister, Megan. Hello. How goes it today, you guys? That's really eager. Sorry. It's really <laughs> eager. Oh, good. I'm having a great day as well. I thought up the greatest icebreaker. I've decided to start opening with an icebreaker. I think it's funny. And here we go. Nice. Are you ready? You have to answer right. this question. If you had to pick a single artist, past or present, with whose persona you most identify, you yourself, who would it be? I will clarify the question. When we're reading or listening to something or viewing an author's work or, or an, any kind of art, really, we come away with an unavoidable impression, not just of the author's worldview and thematic thrust, but also of their personality. Example, you watch Wes Anderson, you watch um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and you get a picture of this quirky, sarcastic guy who loves simple and earnest emotional encounters and forgotten people. And if he were at a party, you would probably find him in the corner with the oldest person in the room, picking their brain about some experience they had when they were a kid, right? That's the impression that I get of Wes Anderson as a human being. Now, let's not get into whether those impressions are facades or real representations of a person. (laughs) That's too meta. That's altogether too meta. (laughs) Okay. Let's assume that all the artists we encounter are being perfectly honest in the impression they give of their own personalities. Who do you identify with? If you want to think about it for a second, I can start. Does that mean who we who we wish we were or who we think we are? Now that is a fantastic question. I would say that's think, like well, the question of existence. Really Freudian. Oh, wow, yeah. you got Freudian. I think that's a great question. Clarifying question. I initially thought who you think you are, like who who wh- okay. when you watch the author, you're like, oh yeah, mm-hmm, me too. But does anybody really know what time it is? I know. You know what I mean. <laughs> who are you, Joel? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you can take it however you want. I'm just interested to see what comes out of this. Okay, well, I had a gut instinct, and I feel like an icebreaker, the point of it is not to overthink it. You just go with your gut, and maybe you think about it later, and you think, I was so wrong, and I was on the air, and now it's preserved for all eternity, but you don't let that freak you out. Ah, um, Megan, so here it we to go. yourself. Let's go. Okay, so, so my first thought was Lucy Maud Montgomery, because in my mind, her character, Anne Shirley, is, is the most over-the-top positive character that she could think of. And I imagine that Lucy Maud Montgomery needed that kind of excitement and encouragement in her own life, wanted to be <laughs> Anne Shirley with all of her heart, and went about seeing the world intentionally that way and telling herself encouraging things through Anne. And I think uh, so I want to be like that. What a great answer. <laughs> that is a fantastic answer. Wait, this leads me to another question, Megan. What? Is, is Molly Kate your Anne Shirley? Yes, yes. Molly Kate is my my younger sister, and she is the epitome of Anne. She is everything I want to be. Uh, so I write so about Molly Kate. Cute. I love that so much. 
Okay, great. Well, I, I hate any of us to have to follow that, but anyone else? <laughs> well, I have to say that, that I actually um, was going to say that too. You were going to say the I same mean, thing? I what? meant it. I meant that you are my true daughter. <laughs> that oh I my actually, gosh. I was trying, to, I was casting about for somebody else because I understand you to say which author do I identify with, not which character do I identify with. And I identify with Anne Shirley. I, I identify with her in many ways, but mostly in the ways that are really <laughs> laughable. <laughs> oh, <laughs> The way she goes on and on and she names names things, really funny <laughs> things that are very romantic and um, she's, she's kind of melancholic in the way she thinks about the world and we overblows call it everything. Rose Lane. <laughs> yeah, you know, she never says with one word what she can say with five. And, you know, <laughs> I identify that with Anne Shirley, awesome. but that's not really what you were asking. You were asking, uh, what author do you I identify with most? And so I'd have to say Gerard Manley Hopkins. Ooh, and, and why? It's, because of the same sort of thing. He's kind of brooding, kind of melancholic, oh, really mom. stuck in his head. <laughs> and he theologizes every ding-dang thing. <laughs> nice. Fun game. I like this, this game. Is, this is producing exactly what I hoped for. <laughs> All right, Emily. Emily, you okay. follow it. Do you also identify with a melancholic Heathcliff of a character? <laughs> sort of. But no, with some differences. I, the first author that came to mind for me was F. Scott Fitzgerald because he is a mix of he wants to party and have a good time, but (laughs) is also really serious about his work, (laughs) but often gets distracted from his work because of the partying. And like, (laughs) I also write like he did. Like, it's a labor intensive process. That and like you get five words now. My words are not nearly as sparkling as his, but just <laughs> so much effort for so little work. And you're constantly being distracted <laughs> by all the glitter of the world, particularly your your just um, champagne glass. <laughs> am I your? Am I Zelda? I was going there. Dang it! You stole my joke. You anticipated her. <laughs> By your, just your unpredictable spouse. Yeah, by your by your <laughs> yes. impossible, self-centered, and eventually crazy spouse. Not what I said. No. Just, yeah, well, well. Unpredictable. Oh, my goodness. That is so funny. This what a fantastic a answer. Oh, okay, Dad. I'm not going to try and follow any of you people. I wish I were Dave Brubeck. Oh, oh nice. Yeah. I don't think I am. I'm a lame piano player compared to Dave Brubeck. But <laughs> Dave Brubeck was, by all accounts, a really good guy. And so I wish that I were that good a piano player and that good a guy at the same time. And that good a guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. I can say with authority and confidence that you have half of those nailed. <laughs> <laughs> you. This is a man who's heard me play piano. So You are a really great you are a really great guy. <laughs> you should have said you are a really great pianist. <laughs> I should have said you are a really great pianist. Um, I happen to think you're a great uh, piano player, but it's hard to... When you're trying to compare yourself to Dave Brubeck, you're probably going to come out on the short end. You're going to lose. Yeah. yeah. Well, my, I love all of that. You guys are just all smarter than me. My immediate response... See if anybody can guess it. Where, where do you imagine that my brain went when I came up with this question? Well, I thought you already told us. Michael Scott? <laughs> oh, Dad, brutal. That's, that is brilliant, though. If I had thought that, I would have you've said actually, You've actually said that to me before. Oh, I was going to say Herbert Pocket from Great Expectations. <laughs> <laughs> These are all characters, not artists. I know. The pale young I know, gentleman. I just think... Jack Black. Jack Black. Jack Black. Jack Black, of course. It's oh, Jack Black. Yeah. I, it's my apt. sense of humor, 
my um, supple eyebrows. <laughs> it's, oh really, it's Jack Black. I think it's Jack Black. Your for me, choice of the word supple. The fact that I can jump up into the air and do like a spinny kick while dragging around a little bit of a of a gut all at the same time. <laughs> um, that's Jack Black is my spirit animal. I love it. Oh my goodness. And then you're also so a proficient artist and have secret talents that no one knows anything about. Yeah, including she musical talents. She thinks I'm awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Wonder if you could sing the the Star Spangled Banner. Not, the same way oh, that Jack Black not could. Not with that kind of aplomb, I couldn't. Well, actually, that's not the way to put it. I couldn't sing those notes, but I could definitely do it with that aplomb. <laughs> <laughs> you could do it with all kinds of charisma. There would be vim. There would be vigor. Oh, my goodness. Well, okay, let's let's down to business then. The, the question on the table today is related, I think, to the previous ones, but I want to ask you guys how you see them being related. The question is, what manner of creature is man? How does this sit in the context of our previous two discussions about whether there is a God and then what's he like? Well, I can take this one. My, my first comment at the beginning of our last episode was uh, that you can't really talk about what God is like uh, without also talking about the nature of man, given that we only know about God through our own human perspective. So we're always talking about him in relationship to ourselves. I think that's true, and, and I'd say the opposite is also true, that we can't really know ourselves apart from uh, our relationship to God, that identity is something that's received um, from our maker as opposed to something that's created, self-created. So another way of saying that the two questions are intertwined. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I hear a little bit of a nature versus nurture argument in there too, maybe, Mom, huh? Nature versus nurture, yeah, I suppose so. I mean... We all try to create our identities six ways to Sunday, right? Everything that we encounter in our lives, we turn into a tool to try to get identity and standing and justification and all of those sorts of things. Whatever we engage in, we associate with ourselves because we're always looking to define ourselves, to know ourselves, to realize ourselves. And the things that we go to to try to do that inevitably swallow us whole, right? Mm -hmm. Um, they fail to give us the things that we're looking for and just turn into idols, hmm. right? Disappointing ones. Disappointing that, idols. Even if they're good things, they turn into disappointing idols because they're all too small to do for us what only God can do. Well said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so are there, are there, I mean, it seems like we've summed them already, which is the problem. You ask a question to this group and it's well and truly answered. And then you go, ooh, Boom, bop-a-doo. Moving you got to go find another one. <laughs> I was going to say, what are the larger implications of this question? And I was like, yeah, all of those were large implications. We slayed those already. What you got? We slayed those. So I guess the question of whether or not it's universal has really been answered too. So why don't we, why don't we jump into, to what made you guys, what, what did you come across as you were thinking about this question? Um, Mom, why don't, why don't we start with you? The main place I went when looking at you, you have us looking first at something in the modern world. And so the first thing that I thought of was poet Christian Wyman's poem, Every Ribbon Thing. Mm. And it goes like this. God goes belonging to every ribbon thing he's made, seeing his being simply by being the thing it is. Stone and tree and sky Man who sees and sings and wonders why God goes. Belonging to every riven thing he's made means a storm of peace. Think of the atoms inside the stone. Think of the man who sits alone trying to will himself into a stillness where God goes belonging. 
To every ribbon thing he's made, there is given one shade, shaped exactly to the thing itself. Under the tree, a darker tree. Under the man, the only man to see God goes belonging to every riven thing. He's made him near, made the mind that makes him go, a part of what man knows, apart from what man knows. God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made. So God goes belonging to every riven thing he's made, seeing his being simply by being the thing it is, right? That first of all, man is... He's a riven thing, right? Mm, Something that's split or torn Torn, apart violently. This idea of violence is in that word riven. And he's a thing that's made by God. He's some sort of a a physical testimony and praise of God and evidence of God's greatness and creativity and power. He's, He's a part of the created order. He's a seer, a singer, a wanderer, a questioner a seeker of God, and simultaneously in all of those things, he's a witness of God, one who belongs to God, and at the same time, one who possesses God, in a sense. He's willful and restless and in need of peace. He's something that casts a shadow, has a shadow self that is an observer of God. He's somewhat self-conscious and sentient and intelligent. And he's both above other things and below God, wise and ignorant. So according to Christian Wyman's poem, man is created by God as a, a kind of testimony of himself. And by his very being, man sings or praises God just by being what he is. Like the rock. Like the rock. Which sings praises to God by being a rock. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. I don't want to interrupt no, you, please, Lizzie. Please do. It was interesting in that poem that the rock testifies by being a rock and the tree by being a tree, and man testifies by being riven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, which I think is, um, that sounds like Christian Wyman. That's like essential Christian Wyman, right? There's it, the, the rivenness of man, his brokenness, his trouble, his pain, um, is some th- something essential to him, and that that is the thing in which God goes belonging. Well, it's, it's almost like that, that, that rivenness, that suffering, right? That the rivenness induces in man creates that shadow self uh, mm-hmm. that sits alone and is the only man to see God going, mm-hmm. belonging mm-hmm. to the That's the line things, I meant. Right? Yeah. What is, if the shadow self is the only man to see God going, though, that contributes back into, it's like a big circle. It contributes back into the rivenness again because we can't quite get our hands around the features of God that our inner self perceives, right? Is is that, am I... Say that again, that we can't quite get our mind around the features of self. Around the features of God, right, that that our inner self perceives, but that our conscious self can't really get a a hold of, Mm -hmm. I guess is what I'm trying to say. intuitive instead. Right. Maybe the, what was going through my mind about rivenness is that um, it has something to do with being both body and spirit, body and soul as well. I think... Um, Tolkien messes around with that idea a bunch when he talks about the difference between mortality and immortality. But uh, yeah, I, I won't go down that particular rabbit trail, but, but body and soul is a rivenness mm-hmm. because we're, mm-hmm. we have two parts mm-hmm. that are both essentially ourselves that can't ever fully communicate with each other. Yeah, yeah. There's mm-hmm. a definitely a sense of, of insufficiency and lack in man's ability to grasp. I think that's what you said, Ian. Man's ability to grasp 
the going of God or the presence of God or the, the, the image of God. And that's uh, the fact that he struggles in between knowing and unknowing, in between body and soul, in between certainty and uncertainty. Um, is part of what makes a man. I was just thinking on that that repeating line, God goes belonging in every riven thing. And at the beginning, that sounded really heavy. It sounded like a darkness. And at the end of that poem, mm. it sounded really hopeful that God goes belonging in every riven thing. He belongs in you, you riven thing. And there's a, a closeness and a relationship that seems to be emphasized over and over again over the course of that poem that deepens in hopefulness. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely cool. true. I think it's a villanelle that we're looking at here because with every repeated line, the punctuation changes slightly and the emphasis on the words themselves change so that God belongs to every riven thing he's made. God goes, comma, belonging to every riven thing he's made, sing his being simply by being the thing it is. Oh, and yeah. then later... Uh, stone, tree, sky, man who sees and sings and wonders why God goes, period. Belonging, comma, to every riven thing he's made means a storm of peace. Your man longs to belong, and we want to belong to God. Have you ever tried to write a villanelle? Oh, it's hard. It's so it's hard. hard. I worked on one for a long time, still didn't finish it, and promptly gave up. Writing a villanelle is really, <laughs> really hard, as it turns out. Well, it's something about writing a line that can be repeated with a deepened meaning every single without time getting repetitive. without getting repetitive right. and redundant <laughs> right but he manages it here switching up the punctuation god goes belonging period to every room and thing he's made there's given one shade shaped exactly to the thing itself right every single time it, it comes up it's slightly different it's beautiful what was the line about about the shadow i'm all hung up on the shadow Self, or is it the shadow? How did it go? Yeah, it goes, Read that uh, line again. So to every ribbon thing he's made, there's given one shade shaped exactly to the thing itself. Under the tree, a darker tree. Under the man, the only man to see God goes belonging to every ribbon thing. That's gorgeous. I could think on that for a really long time, I think. Well, if you think about it, it's, it's not when you're your sunny self that you're really thinking on God. It's in the shadow self that you're really thinking about the nature of God and the implications of that to you. Um, it's in the it's in the suffering in your own life that you really do seek the person of God and want to know Him and need Him in some way. Hmm. That ties into my example so well. Go, Megan. Go. Does it? Oh, go. Go ahead. It then. does, though. Okay, so. I'm going to need to do some plot summary, so you all need to be patient with me. But my reference today is going to be from a TV show that came out in 2010. It's called Rev, just R-E-V dot, standing for reverend. And it's, um, it's a fantastic show. If you haven't seen it, you need to go and watch. It's kind of quirky. Tom Hollander is the star. And I think he also co-wrote it. So it's kind of his brainchild. With Olivia Coleman. Uh, I don't know that Olivia Coleman helped write it. It was somebody else, I think. Oh, really? But she co-starred. But she's in it. Yeah. yeah, it's Tom Hollander opposite Olivia Coleman, and his character is exactly the man that Mom just finished describing. If if the qualification for a representative of human nature is that he is a riven thing, and he's broken, and in his brokenness is seeking God, that is exactly Tom Hollander's character. He is uh, his name is Reverend Adam Smallbone. All of which is funny, <laughs> and we could talk about that name for a full hour. Um, Tom Hollander is about four foot nothing. He's the tiniest man I've ever seen. But his name is Adam, as if, you know, the first man. And he is an Anglican vicar in East London who pastors a church called St. Saviors in the Marsh. And the church is just a mess. It's a ramshackle little building in a really bleak part of town. 
And uh, it's a really sad, it's like a dying church community, laughed at by the workmen who walk by in the day and by the school children he's just jeered at. And it's kind of a, a dying institution, kind of a hopeless setting for what will prove to be a sitcom. As you, <laughs> as you hang out with Reverend Adam and his wife, they are just hilarious. They manage to be lighthearted in the midst of uh, hard and trying times. But, but if you look at Reverend Adam and his life and his calling as a vicar, he's, I mean, he's beset. He's, uh, he faces economic woes and uh, near empty pews, almost nobody comes to his church, uh, dwindling funds. And at the same time, even his, his larger order of the Anglican church is, is kind of giving in to worldliness and pushing him in that direction as well. But through all of it, he is standing firm or trying to stand firm in his own faith and is needing God to intervene more and more. And the show is really unique because it shows you his crisis of faith. There are multiple scenes where he's sitting all by himself in a really everyday scenario. At one point, he's sitting on a toilet even. (laughs) He's he's crying out to God, begging him to come down and intervene and assist him. He's wearied in his his work, and he knows that he's called to this, this tiny little place, but he is yet to see the hand of God in it. And I just think the character is so, it was so unique because it's not making a mockery of, of the church in any way. Um, it's telling the truth about it and, and acknowledging the hardship that it is to be a person of faith in this world, in this culture today. Uh, and, and it's hopeful because I don't want to spoil anything, but in season three, God does come down and intervenes in, in the, the setting of the story. And he comes down, you guys, as a, a character dressed in a tracksuit. I mean, he looks like another derelict attending this church. And he comes and he sits down next to Adam Smallbone and he has a conversation with him. And doesn't he give him a beer? Itself, yeah. I think he gives him a beer. <laughs> he drinks a beer with Adam Smallbone and sits next to him. And as I was thinking about this and, and what it might say about the qualities of humanity, it's, it was so significant that God came down and took on flesh in that episode. And the, the, the flesh that he chose was so comedic, but also so poignant because he came down and he was, he was common. He was one of the people that this reverend felt called to commune with. And he came down and, and uh, validated the vicar's post and basically said, I am with you. I am part of your congregation. Let's have a beer. And yeah, um, yeah. it was... He I identified mean, oh. with him. It identified with him. And to that point, I know it makes me cry. To that point, um, <laughs> the reverend has, has demonstrated a lot of weakness, a lot of personal weakness. He is not an exemplary person except for this unflagging, tenacious, desperate faith. He's kind of a, I mean, he's kind of a layabout in some other ways. And yet this God comes down and condescends to dwell among us. And I think it elevates humanity. The fact of the incarnation is Mm. recognized. It's worthy of that attention. Yeah. It really, it's, Mm. it was a really deep, deep show. So that's what I thought of. What puts a fine point on that, that idea of image bearing, right? I mean, we usually, when we think about man being an image bearer, it, we think about man being created in the image of God, as we're told in Genesis. But this suggests, when you're talking about the incarnation, the incarnational elements of the relationship that we have with God, he takes man's image, right? Yeah. He becomes man as Christ became man and sits beside us and functions as a riven thing. 
Mm. Yeah, I love That's that. That's so interesting. I, I'm probably going to do this once an episode every episode, and I apologize in advance, but it's what's been going on in the mind of yours truly, so you're going to get it. I was reading Genesis in school very recently, <laughs> and it turns out the translation of that very verse that you just mentioned, Mom, let us make man in our image, is more properly translated as, let us make man as our image, so that the image of God is man. Oh, wow. And it, it goes right back to the Wyman poem, to the, to the being of a thing, being its worship. We, in our very essence, as, a, as, a, as something created, are the image of God, which I think is just gorgeous, totally gorgeous, and, and gives a whole new dimension to the incarnation. It does. Right? That, in, that kind of incarnational um, idea makes me think about Gerard Manley Hopkins and his idea of inscape. You guys ever oh, yeah. heard about mm. Hopkins' concepts of inscape? His, yeah, give me a, a lot of weird ideas, and he always named him strange things that don't communicate <laughs> necessarily to anybody to without do. a little help. He, was, he had plenty of time on his hands. He's he's like envious of Shakespeare's right up, right to like invent words. Yeah. He's like, he's I can do that. Do that. Yeah, it's true. Billy yeah. Shakes has nothing on me. Watch me invent a word. Inscape. <laughs> How's that grab you? <laughs> But you can see him basically um, playing with the idea of a compound word, right? And choosing two words, pushing them together in order to communicate what each of the words really does suggest by themselves. So the inscape is the inner thingness of a thing, is what he would say, that makes it what it is. And you can hear that in Wyman's poem, right? The, the what does he say? The, the rock, where is that? Uh, the stone and tree and sky, uh, that he's talking about these things singing his being simply by being the thing it is stone tree sky man who sees and sings and wonders why right that that's almost like the inscape that hopkins is talking about that everything bears the image of god inside itself in its thingness and gives us some information about the one that created it functioning as a kind of image right anyway i Beautiful. i uh I, I was thinking when you asked us to to link our modern idea to a classic example, my yep. classic example was actually a Hopkins example, although I didn't at the moment, or when I was conceiving of it, I didn't think about Inscape. Uh, that, that just kind of dawned on me as we were talking. But Great connection, though. Yeah, well, he wrote a poem that, that's called Immortal Diamond, and it's very short. Uh, it goes like this. Across my foundering deck shone a beacon, an eternal beam. Flesh fade and mortal trash fall to the residuary worm. World's wildfire leave but ash. In a flash, at a trumpet crash, I am all at once what Christ is, since he was what I am. And this jack joke, poor potsherd, match, matchwood, immortal diamond, is immortal diamond. So... That idea of incarnation that you were talking about, Megan, um, where God comes down and assumes the image of man, right, in a kind of meta sort of a way, um, and becomes riven like we are and lives a life of suffering and becomes that shadow self that Christian Wyman mentions. That comes across in this particular poem. He talks about, um, he gives us this image of a man who's foundering like a ship right? That encounters a, a beacon of some sort of eternal light that comes in the shape of a, a rescue. And that rescue actually comes through this very divine identification, incarnation and substitution, this in a flash, in a trumpet crash, we get that allusion to the last trump, right? When Jesus comes back and, and all at once, 
he is what Christ is mm-hmm. since he was what I am. That, that there's so much theology in, in that little line, no um, the, the idea of substitutionary atonement, that if we are, were in Christ in the crucifixion, then we'll be found in Christ at the end and we will be as he is, right? And we're transformed from a jack. That is, he says, a, a man is a jack, a joke, a poor potsherd, a match, a matchwood. He's base. He's laughable. He's subject. He's broken. He's impoverished and fit for burning. But simultaneously, he's this immortal diamond through the burning, right? All the dross disappears and there's nothing left but a diamond, the facets of, the facets of which become a perfect object to reflect the image of God, which is light, right? Oh, Isn't that gorgeous. beautiful? So he becomes this image of the second Adam, the better man through identification. And simultaneously, you, you get all of the empathy of Christ's incarnation with that transformation that it works on the poor man. It, it, I just think it's lovely. Mm, that is so beautiful. So it's a little different, though, in my mind than the Wyman poem, although I see the connection. Because Wyman seems to be, if he is comparing us to the tree and the rock, and I don't remember all the other things that he lists, but there's not really a moral component to any of those things. He's talking about the createdness of it, the givenness of right. it. Yes. Right. Whereas yeah. Hopkins is, in a very theological way, like you said, saying, what manner of creature is man? Well, he's pretty messed up, to be perfectly honest. Right. But both of them, both of them see a rivenness in man, and both of them come down on the idea that man is in some way a reflector. An image. Which I think, yes, that the point is well taken on that, on that comparison. I don't know if this is right, but I was pretty sure that what you read, Mom, is actually the second half of a larger poem called That Nature is a Heraclitean Fire and of the Comfort of the Resurrection. And if that's true, the first half is actually about natural imagery in some ways. And it reminded me even more strongly of Christian Wyman. That inscape image is present in the first half of that poem. And as a result, man is in context in that poem. And of course, it's a really long poem and, and we probably can't read the whole thing, but man is in context of the natural world, part of this temporal representation of the fingerprints of God all over the place. And the, the, his plight is, is made great at the end of, of that first half. He is, he is mm. uh, fading away with all of the natural world and yet hush now the resurrection and it comes like a clarion so, call into the poem. This, um, this temporal and eternal coming together, God coming down to man and transforming him into an immortal diamond. So I think that was such wow. a great choice. And I do so think Hopkins it dovetails just, with Christian Wyman so beautifully. Hopkins just basically takes a step past Wyman in making it explicitly theological. Right. He says, there's theology in that rock. Let's go look for it. Yeah. Yeah, let's go look. Well, for and it. I yeah, hear that in, in Christian Wyman too. Um, although he's less he's less forward with it, it's implicit right. in what he's saying because his contemplation is where God goes, right? It's a meditation on God and His going and what it means to man, um, what man is as a result of the going of God um, in His rivenness and in His being Himself, right? Yeah, that's very theological. That's spectacular. What a great pairing. This makes me, I just had this crazy idea and maybe you guys, maybe you guys will shoot it down. Maybe you won't. Hmm. Maybe it'll be the seed of a future show. I want to go watch Rev again and I want there to be a poem paired with each episode. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? So that I can read the poem and then have the, the, 
Do you see what I'm saying? Which, which poem goes with, with um, the episode where Adam Smallbone prays to God while sitting on a toilet? That's what I <laughs> oh, that this too too it's solid Shel flesh Silverstein. would melt. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of too too solid you're flesh and melting, just uh, fighting for his life on the toilet. Um, <laughs> I regret everything now. <laughs> so Megan, speaking of too too solid flesh. <laughs> Your final example is Hamlet, unless I miss my guess. Yeah, it is. I thought of Hamlet as I was watching Rev, actually. I thought that he was a kind of an, an anti-Hamlet in some ways. Hamlet is in a, in a similar, not similar in many ways, but a, a dark situation <laughs> at the beginning of his story. Everyone knows it. The bard doesn't need much of an introduction, of course. But Hamlet is, in some ways of looking at it, the best of them in Denmark in his day. But when our story opens, he has witnessed a tragedy and an incestuous betrayal and the usurping of his father's kingdom, and he's crippled by the weight of these events. And, and also, he seems to me, and this is my personal reading, to be kind of hindered by a mighty intellect. He is really tripped up by his own ability <laughs> to think about stuff. And he's grappling with questions of responsibility, and foreknowledge and justice and divine mercy and all the big things that trouble you as a human being, right? He's down here and he's wondering about agency. He sees all of the problems in the world and he's wondering how much of this is my responsibility to fix and change. And of course, in the famous story, he meets a ghost who tells him to avenge his father and pretty much convinces him that it is his job to right all of these wrongs. But he hesitates and spends the rest of the play trying to decide if it is his place? Should he be the divine arbiter of justice? And as he vacillates, as he thinks about this, he proves himself to be what I think Shakespeare would say is, is truly a man. He's mercurial, he's changeable, he's majestic in some ways, and he's ultimately doomed. He's doomed to fail without some kind of intervention. And, um, and I think he knows it. Well, I think partially he's doomed because of what you said at the beginning that he has such a great intellect and yeah. he um he is not really a fan of his bodily nature so Ian, what you were saying before about the rivenness of man one of the manifestations of that being body and spirit well hamlet hates his body he doesn't he he hates the solid flesh and he is disgusted by ophelia and his mother's bodily sins and the, the, the mortality of man, um, if you look through the imagery of the play, his references to disgusting bodily imagery, um, he's obsessed with it because he hates it so much. He wants to just be spirit and intellect. So this rivenness that we've been talking about today, this combination of his physical and his, and his spiritual self, he can't bear it. He'd rather throw off the physical. He's a docetist. It sounds like a tragedy. He's a Manichaean. It's a Manichaean. That sounds like a tragedy. Did you just say sounds that? Sounds like a real tragedy. Yeah. What a tragic thing. Oh. What? Aren't the Dawsonists the ones scenario. that denied the, the physical body of Christ? Yes. Just the spirit, Dawsonists? Yeah. The Dawsonists. You know, he's a Dawsonist. Yeah, he's a Dawsonist. Merry little Dawsonist. It's it's irrelevant. <laughs> Moving on. That's a great, she just wanted a great joke, she though. wanted the world to know that she knew the word docetist. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I blow raspberries oh in goodness. your general direction. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, that's my that's my uh, classic reference. So the answer summarize, summarize it for me. what manner of creature is man according to yeah the bard in Hamlet? 
Well, according to the bard, I think that he's, uh, he's fatally flawed in the image of God. That's what I would say. Did you just quote John Foreman? Yeah, I did. Mic drop. I love John it. Foreman. <laughs> I know. Speaking of guys that talk about man all the time. Mike I know, right? He's, he has a great grip on human nature. I was very tempted to choose him as my modern reference, but you said only one and Rev stole my heart. So yeah, well, I never listened I, to him <laughs> when he says only one. What I was going to say is that since you're talking about Shakespeare, about the bard, um, I also thought about King Lear. The In Act 3, Scene 4, um, poor King Lear has been turned out by his mean daughters onto the heath in this terrible storm, and he's wandering around there and encounters Gloucester's son, who has also been done wrong, and he's disguised out there as poor Tom the beggar, and he's completely naked to the elements. And for Lear, who is maybe for the first time in a condition to actually think about the big questions in life, this circumstance makes him ruminate about man. And he says, why thou wert better in thy grave than to answer with thy uncovered body, this extremity of the skies is man no more than this. Consider him. Well, thou owest the worm, no silk, the beast, no hide, the sheep, no wool, the cat, no perfume. Ha, here's three on us are sophisticated. Thou art the thing itself. Unaccommodated man is no more, but such a poor bare forked animal as thou art. And mm. looking down at poor Tom, you know, he's moved with a kind of empathy. And his very next words are, off, off, you lendings, come unbutton here. And he starts taking his coat off. And everybody thinks, all oh, the guy's crazy. But really, I think what's going on there is he's so moved by the sight of this vulnerable man, Edgar, naked in the mud, getting rained on, right, pelted by the heavens. Um, <laughs> he, he strips there to cover him up. And um, th I think this also adds another dimension to our question of what is man, because it pulls in that idea of man as being capable of empathy and compassion. Man is feeling, and mm -hmm. that feeling mm -hmm. comes through his vulnerability and his common subjectivity, right? Mm -hmm. And suffering. Yeah. And that, that kind of pulls us back around, I think, to Wyman as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. It, I think so too. I think so too. It, but it makes me think that someone asked me this question once. It wasn't phrased exactly like this, but what's the lead characteristic? How do we define man as unique from other animals? Is he the thinking creature or would you say something else? Dad, what would you say? Rephrase the question. So you're talking about man as an animal. And so you'll say man is the rational animal or man is the feeling animal or and so on. Well, I have some thoughts that I'm putting together for a future episode on that very question. But I, but just to give a little, a little sneak preview, I think that nine out of ten people would probably say man is the rational animal, it, without thinking about it. That that's the thing that sets man apart from the other animals. And if you get into the question of, you know, in the in a theistic world, what is the image of God in man? That nine out of ten people would probably say reason. Mm. So that's an easy, that's an easy answer. I'm not sure of it. I got some questions about it, but I think that's probably the where a lot of people would go. And with reason. There's reason, obviously, to, to say that. There's reason to talk about reason, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is, is reason... Is, is Okay, so help me out. Is that the same thing as man is the only creature that can watch himself think? I. That's how I've taken it. The only creature that's self-aware? That would... Yeah, that's how I've taken it. Sure. That'd be, that'd be part of it, yeah. Rationality is self-awareness? Yeah. Oh, man, we could go some fun places with this. Because my my instinct is is from the Lear example. Man is the compassionate animal. 
the only the only creature with the ability to do and i guess this but you run into problems immediately like every every creature will defend its young okay well then we're back in the same boat again of reason being the only thing separating us so i don't know that's not really what the episode's for necessarily but it's a fun conversation (laughs) (laughs) let's have them all right now let's have all of them let's Let's just go right this very minute so so maybe a round of of final comments how how do you personally without resorting to another uh another author or another artist um thinking about yourself and your own life and you don't have to get as personal only as personal as you want to be but how would you define this for yourself how do you think about about this issue well i i identify with the idea of man being subject right mm. simultaneously an image bearer but created a little lower than the angels right and crowned with glory mm. and honor he is subject <laughs> to God, God's will, God's ways, God's coming and going, God's hiding of himself from him. Mm. He's a, he's a made thing, you know? And the, the reason I say that is because I want to be in control. Uh. That's where I live. Uh. I want to be in control. I want to know everything. There's nothing worse than not knowing. Um, Especially because, because if you know, if you know what things are, knowledge is power, right? Isn't that what the library says to children? Knowledge is power. It was on like Grammar Rock or something (laughs) on Saturday morning cartoons. Absolutely. Schoolhouse Rock. I imbibed that Schoolhouse Rock sentiment and my whole life I've been like looking for knowledge and wanting to know and it's largely so that by knowing I can climb up on the pedestal of the universe and be in God's place and control my own destiny and the destiny of the people that I love the most and, and, um, fear aren't going to be all right. Right. It's not a malevolent desire to control. It's a foolish one. Um, because really what I am is as subject as everyone else is. And the, the need, what I really need to know better, I think is, my creator. I need to know who he is. I need to know his nature. I need to become better acquainted with his rivenness and his empathy and his love for me and the kind of substitutionary atonement that I found in Hopkins, um, that nature is a Heraclitian fire and of the power of the resurrection, that little snippet that I read, Immortal Diamond, right? That revelation that he has that comes as a beacon of light to him, I really identify with. Uh, and I, I know I need it too. Mm. I was thinking in this connection that the question on the table is what manner of creature is man? In my own situation, I come around to the answer that man is a God. He is um, a little lower than the angels, but in the image of God. And so his impulses and instincts are godlike, by which I mean something very specific he tends to worship himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, my own, my own experience is one of learning how in every situation, my, my immediate first impulse is to put my hand on the levers of power and control in order to preserve my reputation, in order to burnish the name that I've made for myself, in order to um, shore up my own sense of self-sufficiency and self-reliance, exactly like God would do legitimately. Mm-hmm. I do illegitimately, idolatrously to use the language of the old Testament. Right. And, and, um, there's a sense in which in my own experience, that's what I am learning that man is. He's a, he's a idol maker. Yeah. What is it? Calvin said he's an idol making factory, right? That's John Calvin, right? An idol making factory. And, and because maybe because of the fact that he is God's own riven thing, 
but this is, you know, maybe part of the image of God in man, which I think anticipates a future discussion, but well, that's what I would the, say. It, maybe it explains the rivenness a little bit. Yeah. You know, the rivenness is necessary or we would successfully set ourselves up. Mm-hmm. I, and the truth is, even if we could set ourselves up, we wouldn't actually be God because we're created beings. <laughs> we actually aren't that thing, even if we try to be him. Uh, and wouldn't it be a shame if we were left in that ignorance? Mm-hmm. Girls, what about you? My answer was definitely more off the cuff than that. <laughs> I love so it. I'm officially intimidated. Hit me with it. <laughs> I don't know. I just, my first answer would be I think that from my perspective, a human being is blind but hopeful, you know, is not sure of what's coming. And it makes all kinds of, it makes for all kinds of trouble and all kinds of fear. And, you know, that's what it is to be a human being and yet hopeful because of all of the things that are true about God. So it's, it's both and. Riven thing. Yeah, well said. Emily? Well, I haven't been saying much because I also am not trying to show my hand Give too much about future, yeah. future subjects. But um, I think that personally, uh, I identify with Hamlet a lot and I... Because I want to be godlike, I would rather identify with my cerebral instincts and neglect the body. And by that, I mean, I, I perceive my needs to be much more grandiose than they actually are when sometimes it's just, you know, a, sh- uh, a bath and a nap. Shower and a nap. You need small beer. You need small beer. Like right. how? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Ian refers to Henry V uh, in his character in the the Henry the Fourth plays, and mm-hmm. he is trying to train himself to be a king, and perceives that to not be not Ian. How? Just to clarify, how I am training to be a king. <laughs> 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 he perceives that to be a really grandiose role that requires perfection in and angelic behavior from him yeah in humanity Mm -hmm. and to the cost of neglecting his bodily existence that is that's such a powerful idea to me my i think my answer to the question has something to do with i'm coming i'm coming to see that inhumanity is actually let's put it this way that perfect goodness is just as much inhuman as despicable evil and that to expect life to consist of continually growing in goodness until you're perfect and have no flaws is to live a long and disappointing life. Disillusionment is before you. (laughs) At least frustrating. And, and I, and so man has to be, it has to be defined around vision of yourself, but not judgment. And that's the thing that I struggle with. I think is, is sitting, like you said, mom, not maybe an impulse to control, but an impulse to judge, to sit in the judgment seat and to pass my own verdict, maybe out of fear of of what the other verdict would be, whether it's from my wife or my, my friends or from God himself. Um, I want to pass my own because that seems a whole heck of a lot safer. If I can confess whatever issue I've got going on before you can get to it, that's a conversation that I'm comfortable in. Right. Um, But I think real humanity has to do with, acknowledging that rivenness, the tension between your intentions and your lived reality, but refusing to pass judgment on it, taking someone else's word for how it goes with you. And that's, I mean, darn near impossible, way easier to say than to do, but 
that's I think that's the matter of creature man is. I wonder if that that element of physicality that you talk about, Emily, goes along with that rivenness as well. I was thinking that too. You know that the rivenness of man that Christian Wyman knows so well because of his own experiences, um, suffering through cancer and things like that, um, that actually comes as a kind of an anchor. Maybe it anchors man to, um, what he truly is so that, so that he doesn't become just a cerebral thing, just, a so he doesn't err on the side of what am I? I'm just a spirit, right? But he's actually forced to reckon with his maidenness. Mm. Well, I, I think Shakespeare actually recognizes the embodiment of that figure in man. He's a forked creature, right? He's he's riven, and that is in his very structure, the very way that he's made. Dang, you guys! Behold, very profound. That was really that was really fun. <laughs> Most profound. Well done, all of you. Well, thank you all f- for being here, and thank you, listeners, for joining us on this episode of Bibliophiles. We have more coming, so please do stay tuned. And until we meet again. Thanks for listening to this episode of our series on the Great Questions. We hope you'll join us next week as the discussion continues with the question, what is the image of God in man? If you're enjoying these chats and want more content like this, check out our membership club, the Pelican Society. Inside, we host live discussions on movies, novels, and all aspects of reading and teaching the great books. We'd love to have you join us in person for some Bibliophiles-style conversations. Until next time, friends, happy reading.